over a thousand generations of Jedi Knights and Guardians of Peace, Justice, Welcome back to A People's History of the Old Republic. Last time, we discussed the Great Jedi, met Jolie Bindo, and Revan met the in-laws. Now, in episode 28, we do some planet hopping after we get sidetracked from the main story, lead a rebellion to free the Wookiees from slavery on Kashyyyk, and learn about the life and death of a Jedi named Andor Vex. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey, and there's always a bit of truth in legends. All right, listener questions. Nathan from Down Under emailed with a couple of questions. The first is, quote, Over Star Wars history, why do we see little or virtually no technological advancement? End quote. It's a good question. Um, Back in episode 23, we discussed the technological advancements in Star Wars as a means of understanding why Tales of the Jedi and Knights of the Old Republic are so aesthetically dissimilar despite occurring 30 to 40 years apart. We said it was because Bioware wanted to make a game that served as an homage to the original trilogy, but especially to The Empire Strikes Back, and then discussed the main technological advancements that were used to justify the change in universe. The galaxy stopped using large hyperspace beacons around 4,000 before the Battle of Yavin with the advent of the personal hyperdrive, engine that allowed single starships to enter hyperspace without the need to travel to the beacons um, and then enter hyperspace from the beacons. This was the great leap forward for the Star Wars universe as it caused rapid expansion, migration, many wholesale societal changes. However, none of that explains why there weren't any other changes to the technology at other times. And to be honest, there's never been a full explanation that we can find for why there is technological stagnation but it's probably a narrative conceit. When Tom Beach was creating Tales of the Jedi and when Bioware were creating Knights of the Republic, they still needed to look and feel like these Star Wars movies, which meant lightsabers and a gigantic universe necessitating faster-than-light travel. Thus, those objects remained relatively similar, though the lightsabers were connected to power packs via a cord in the two Tales of the Jedi prequel arcs, the Golden Age of the Sith and the Fall of the Sith Empire. Long story short is that the likely reason is that technology can't change too drastically, or the universe would look and feel too different from the films. And that's just one of the things we have to accept in the deep lore and world building. Nathan also asks, quote, How are stormtroopers used throughout Star Wars history? Are they good guys or bad guys? What differences, if any, do we see in their armor and equipment over time? End quote. Oh, well... Technically, stormtroopers didn't exist until Sheev Palpatine declared a new galactic empire in 19 BBY, giving all clone troopers their new designation as stormtroopers. But since this is a show about the Old Republic, we're going to focus on the chrome-plated Sith troopers from Knights of the Old Republic and the Republic military troopers in the Old Republic MMO. In KOTOR, the Sith Troopers are the ground enforcers of the Sith Empire and served from about 3959 to 3951. They wear shiny chrome plating, Revan kills a shit ton of them, and they are otherwise nearly indistinguishable from the Stormtroopers of the original trilogy. A faceless group of jackbooted thugs that enforce 
that enforce the will of despots and tyrants. 300 years later, at the time of the Great Galactic War, as shown in the Old Republic MMO, the Republic military soldiers greatly resembled the clone army and design in design and technology. If you've seen the Old Republic cinematics or played the game, you'll remember that Republic soldiers like Jace Malcolm wore a base white armor augmented with different colors and shape patterns to designate squads just like the clones did. They also use similar weapons to the clones, and their level of technology seems to have been about the same. In fact, some people criticize the Old Republic for attempting to look and feel closer to the prequel and original trilogies, even though the MMO begins in 3643 BBY. To be honest, there aren't many differences between all these galactic armies except in who they fight for. The Sith Troopers of old were stormtroopers with chrome plating, and the Republic military was very much like the clones, as shown in the Clone Wars. As for whether they were good or bad, that depends. Uh, At a macro level, the Sith Troopers and Stormtroopers would be decidedly bad given their affiliations with the Sith, but the Republic was always fond of heavy-handed tactics too. Um, On an individual level, however, it's probably more complicated. There would seem to be mitigating factors um, for some given that many soldiers were indoctrinated from birth, forcibly conscripted, or had a change of heart after learning some hard truths. In conclusion, galactic soldiers in the Star Wars universe are a land of contrast. Thank you for both questions, Nathan. A bit of news. We missed this when it happened, but at D23 in late August, Bioware confirmed that Onslaught, the seventh digital expansion for the Old Republic MMO, will be released on October 22nd, 2019. The expansion promises a new story, the eternal struggle between Jedi versus the Sith, and adventures on Corellia, Ondron, Duxun, and more. That's all we know officially, but we will discuss the expansion more after it releases. We don't know if it will be the last expansion for the MMO, but there's a definite possibility, given the heavily rumored shift to the Old Republic timeline. So program note, when we started Knights of the Old Republic, we discussed the canonical order of planets as Tatooine, Kashyyyk, Manan, and Korriban, and that's still the order we're going to find the star maps. We're going to have to make a few detours first. Once we leave Kashyyyk, we're going to have to touch down on Manan long enough to grab the Jinoharadan quest from Hulas, then jump between a few planets before returning to the main quest on on Manan. Why are we doing this? Well, the Jinoharadan quest requires Revan to kill three targets, one each on Manan, Tatooine, and Kashyyyk, but none of the targets show up until after speaking with Hulas. But Hulas won't even give Revan the quest unless he has first gone to Tatooine, acquired the second star map, killed Kalo Nord, and received an invitation for a meeting via datapad. What's more, if we found the star map on Manan, we'd never be able to return to Dantooine because it locks when the Leviathan cutscene begins immediately after leaving the world where the fourth star map is discovered. Thus, we can't return to Dantooine after finding the star map on Manan because it's destroyed by orbital bombardment, there isn't an Enclave to visit after being captured by the Leviathan. We have to return to Dantooine to speak with Jedi Master Disu Disra Lurjaba to find out about the Great Hunt. And also for narrative clarity, we decided to package it like this instead of ping-ponging around the galaxy over a couple of episodes. However, the Gino Haradan quest doesn't have to end on Manon. It can end back on the Dune Sea at Tatooine with original duel because, spoiler, Hulus betrays you and is actually a jerk. We already have to make one trip to Tatooine to complete missions, loyalty quest, 
line and dual one of Hulus's targets, but we will be making a third trip to finish the Gino Harden saga. Thus, after Kashyyyk, we will go to Manan and then make return visits to Kashyyyk, Tatooine, Dantooine, Manan, and Tatooine, in that order, before returning to Manan to pick up where we left off in the main story. Uh, also, we we need to thank uh, listener at Mother of Furbies who asked um, who asked us to cover the Gino Harridan uh, quest and Mother of Furbies. Thank you. Knights of the Old Republic Part 6, The Liberation of Kashyyyk and Manon. When we last left our heroes, they found the Kashyyyk star map hidden, protected by an ancient Rakatan supercomputer. The computer, aka the Builder Forge, asked Revan three questions with obvious answers, but he missed them anyway because answering correctly would require lying to an AI, and good boy Revan would never stoop to such tactics. Then you, the companions defeated the droids unleashed by the Builder Forge, easily, easily beating them. The computer then allowed access to the star map, which Revan and Bastila viewed. On the way back to the elevator basket out of the Shadowlands, the gang found the mad Wookiee that Chundar sent them down there to kill in the first place. Revan discovered that it was Freyr, Zalbar's father, and the former Wookiee chieftain who had been deposed by Chundar and living in the Shadowlands for some time. Though Freyr and Revan initially came to blows, they determined they were not enemies and decided to attempt to free Kashyyyk from its corporate overlords, Circa. However, with Freyr labeled a Magclaw, they will need a superior claim to tradition than Chundar already has, and the only thing that could do it is Baka's Blade, a ceremonial weapon that was lost years before in the hide of a great beast. As it stands, Revan, Jolie, and let's just go with T3, are heading to find the Great Beast, which we will soon find out is a Terentitech. These beasts love to play to prey on the blood of Force Sensitives, and while only one-fourth the size of a Bull Rancor, like the one Revan and Karth took down in the Terrace Sewers, they make up for it by being far more deadly. During the Great Sith War, the beasts were used by Exar Kun to take out Jedi, Jedi outposts on many worlds, but were nearly hunted to extinction by the Jedi after the war. A story we'll discuss in more detail when we visit Master Disra on Dantooine in a little bit. Alright, after searching for a bit, the group comes upon a ritual marker with instructions for anyone attempting to kill the great beast. There's a hanging vine in the corner of a small clearing that Revan uses to tie up a viper kinrath in order to draw the Terentatech out of its lair. The trick works, and the companions get to work hacking away at the beast with poison fangs, claws, and horns. After the fight, the Terentatech lay dead, and Revan found Baka's blade buried in its back, retrieving it for Frere. Revan also finds a datapad journal belonging to Gunhan Suresh, a Jedi who died trying to kill the Kashyyyk Terentatech. The journal says that two other Jedi, Shayla and Duron, fell to the dark side hunting the other known Terentatech on Korriban, and Sarish abandoned them after that. When Revan returns to Freyr, wielding Baka's blade, the old Wookiee is ecstatic and it's nearly time to begin the rebellion, but there are a couple of side quests to finish up first. Revan has to gather a tack gland for Griffau, which he does because those clans are lying all over the place, and there's like four of them in the box in one of the circuit camps. The companions also help avenge an ambushed Wookiee hunting party by killing a bunch of Mandalorians wearing stealth generators. Revan and company eventually find their commander and are forced to fight and kill him as well, 
after which Revan takes the Mandalorian's helmet as a trophy of the victory. At three Mandalorian helmets he's taken now, it's starting to become a trend. He also took Mandalore the Ultimate's mask after defeating him in single combat, later leaving it in a tomb on Rekiat. Revan's famous mask that he also wore as Darth Revan came from a female Mandalorian warrior who died trying to prevent the genocide of the Cathar people by Cassius Fett. Finally, the group investigates the case of a missing Wookiee named Rawr. Unfortunately for all the Wookiees who looked up to Rawr, he's dead now. And even more unfortunately, Rawr doesn't fight against the slavers as is commonly believed, but actually helps them take more Wookiees into captivity. The group found his corpse in a bowcaster belt casing, whatever that is, beside the body. That that was that was solid pronunciation. I'm, I, I like that. <laughs> that was awesome. Wookie names, man. Wookie names. With that out of the way, it's time to lead a rebellion. There you go, man. Hey, if, hey. Everybody's got a, there. There has to be someone who's best at everything, you know. So I mean that—that's your thing. With that out of the way, it's time to lead a rebellion against the evil Zer- uh, against the evil Zerka, along with Freyr. At least it will be once we make it back to the basket, then the trip up, then running all the way back to the capital. Rabukroro. This is one of those times where we just spam the burst of speed force power for obvious reasons. Once the group makes it back to the village, they are all brought before Chundar, who is flanked by Zalbar, some Zerka thugs, and a bunch of Wookiee guards. What follows is a tense showdown that will decide the future of Kashyyyk, and now even Big Z is unsure whether to trust his brother or father. Chundar has been in his ear since Revan descended into the Shadowlands, and now Zalbar doesn't know what to do. Zalbar hates Chundar, but Freyr was also the one who exiled him in the first place, so Big Z doesn't really trust his father. Because of the life debt and his indecisiveness, Big Z puts his trust in Revan to make the right decision. No pressure, Revan. You're just deciding the fate of an entire planet for thousands of years. If Revan goes dark, he sides with Chundar, and Zerker will continue to exert control over the world and it will retain the name Idian. If Revan goes light, he sides with Freyr before they overthrow Zerka and Chundar. When Revan makes the decision to hold to the light and side with Freyr, the Hall of Chieftain erupts in blaster fire, lightsaber hum, and clashing vibroblades. Vibroblades. Chundar and Zalbar get to have it out again 20 years after their last fight, while Freyr, Revan, T3, and Jolie Bindo slice through the Chundarist Wookiees and Zerka cronies. When the fighting died down in the Hall, Chundar was dead by his brother's hands, and the spirit of revolution took hold. And this isn't just some isolated village uprising either. Wookiees all across Kashyyyk rose up to break their chains and Zerka's hold on the planet forever with every Zerka employee having been killed or driven off world. After 64 years of exploitation and rule by Zerka, the Wookiees were free thanks to the efforts of Zalbar, Freya, Revan, and his companions. Big Z was given the reforged Baka's blade as a reward for helping lead the rebellion, while Revan was given a special place in Wookiee lore where he was honored as an emancipator of Kashyyyk. Canon Alert 30. Created for 2003's Netzel Republic, Circa Corporation, aka Circa Arms, was canonized by the 2015 reference book Ultimate Star Wars and was greatly fleshed out in Claudia Gray's excellent 2019 novel Master and Apprentice. 
and KOTOR, Circa is a comically evil, faceless corporation that was meant to serve as another antagonist against Revan. They are involved in just about every illegal, immoral, and ethically dubious activity that exists. Circa exploits resources and ecologically devastate and the ecologically devastate subject worlds. They have a scientific R&D division that performs experiments on their slaves to further corporate innovation. They are heavily involved in politics, exerting their money to influence elections and exempt the company from laws they find odious. Some believe they are even more powerful than the Galactic Senate. Further, Circa is an arms dealer to anyone and everyone as long as they have the credits. And there's, you know, the whole slavery thing, which is where they make most of their money. It's like Amazon, but with shadow slavery instead of weights, or in addition to weight slavery. All of these facts were true in Knights of the Republic, and they were all canonized in Graves, Master, and Apprentice as well. The Circa in canon is just like Circa in Legends, though canon Circa is said to have been possibly older than the Republic itself, a fact that isn't even implied in Legends. Yay! Zerka! <laughs> oh, they suck. As Revan and his companions make their way to the Ebon Hawk, Kashik is already changing for the better. Zerka workers are nowhere to be found, their outposts are being torn down, and the Wookiees are beginning to reestablish their dominion on the world. For now, they will remain independent, untouched by the Galactic Republic or Sith Empire for many years to come, and no one will ever call it a DN again. As the ship departs and jumps to hyperspace, the companions leave the mid-rim behind, heading galactic southwest towards the inner rim world Manon. But first, we have a cutscene featuring Darth Malak and his Sith Admiral, Saul Kareth. Admiral Kareth has just learned the news that Kalu Nord failed his mission when he was killed on Dantooine. Or, on Tatooine, excuse me. Kareth is prepared to die because, as Malik notes, the penalty for failure is death, but it's not his day to die just yet. Lord Malik says the failure was Nord's, not Kareth's, asking his admiral to rise and resume command. Malik knew it was foolish to send a bounty hunter after a Jedi and decides to instead send his Sith apprentice, Darth Bandon, to kill the amnesiac Jedi and capture Bastila Shan. This is the moment when you find out that Trask Olgo didn't just save Revan's life by locking himself in a room with some random dark Jedi. It was a bona fide Dark Lord of the Sith. In our, meaning my opinion, all Sith apprentices are Dark Lords, but we'll come back to that when we fight Darth Bandon during the main quest on Manon. As Manon is completely covered in vast oceans that not even the native Selkath have fully explored, it's unclear how Revan, Bastila, and the rest of the gang are going to find the star map. Luckily, the Force is here to help, giving us another cutscene immediately after the Sith one we just discussed, this time showing Bastila and Revan's shared vision of the star map's general location. While Onasi lands the Ibanaka at Docking Bay 26C, one of Ato City's landing platforms, Revan and Bastila discuss the vision. Both felt the presence of the other in the vision and saw the star map opening on the ocean floor. Bastila and Revan both note that, on a world completely covered in water, the star map appears to be located underwater. Thanks for the force for this hint we wouldn't have thought of even ever thought to look under the sea on a planet that is 99.99999% covered in water. After this meeting of the minds, Revan disembarks, taking no companions. 
he's alone because that's what the data pet said he had to do to meet Ulas, and we need to get this annoying side quest. Because despite being annoying as hell, the Jinnoharadan side quest is one of the most memorable in the game. But before we can even sprint past everyone to find Hulas, we're stopped by a cutscene, so it must be important. Well, you'd think that, but it's just Republican Sith soldiers arguing the finer points of their respective political ideologies. These guys are just here to have this argument, and then one of them stands around to provide exposition about Manan, the kind of stuff that we normally cover in a location profile, though we'd probably tell it in much greater depth. On the way out of the docking bay, Revan is confronted by a Selkath port official who warns the gang about following the rules because Manan love their rules and are exceedingly litigious. The port official requires a docking fee, and since Circa isn't anywhere on Manan, we're going to give him the credits. In return, the companions get a Manan's Visitor's Guide, which is a really nice touch. That's right. Consider this location profile of Manan your Visitor's Guide. Located in the Inner Rim in a part of the galaxy known as the Slice, Manon is a water world with only one settlement above the water surface, Otto City. This makes Manon unique among water worlds as even Moncala and Gleanselm have island chains and quite a few settlements above their water. Despite having little in the way for outsiders, the native Selkath species maintain an entire civilization under the sea with cities built into the walls of chasms and mountains below the water. Manon is also the only place in the galaxy where culto, culto, a healing substance similar to Bacta, grows. Many have theorized that the progenitor, a supersized female Faraction shark that lives in the Harakert Rift, is... Well, the progenitor of most life on Manon. She's responsible for producing Kulto somehow, and the smaller Faraction sharks are also her biological uh, descendants. Further, the Selkath revere the progenitor as both a type of god and as the originator of their species at some point tens of thousands of years in the distant past. It was so long ago that when the Rakatan Infinite Empire was drawn to Manon's strong force signature, the Selkath already had a fully functioning society, a rarity at such an early time in galactic history. At some unknown point before 30,000 BBY, the Infinite Empire did invade and conquer Manon, brutally subjugating and enslaving the Selkath. The Selkath, who were able to breathe in and out of water after reaching adulthood, were apparently so numerous as slaves within the Infinite Empire that many ancient Rakatan droids were programmed with the Selkath language. After their enslavement, the Selkath were moved all over the galaxy by their masters, helping to build a number of temples, including the one on Thantuin and even the Star Forge itself. The Selkath were even made to build a temple and star map on Manan, placing them on the ocean floor at the Herakert Rift. When the Rakata abandoned Manan after their mysterious plague hit, all the Rakatan structures near the Herakert Rift were destroyed, leaving only the incomplete star map and some old stone monoliths. For thousands of years after the Rakata, Manan remained isolated from the rest of the galaxy until it was rediscovered before 17,000 BBY. In 3960, Darth Revan and Darth Malak located and somehow accessed the star map. However, by the time of the Jedi Civil War, Manan had become a planet that valued its neutrality above all else. As the only source of culto in the galaxy, they opened embassies for both the Sith and Republic, 
and use the sale of Colto to finance their own independence. The Republicans have both played nice because they badly need Colto to treat injured soldiers. Colto was, at the, this time, more abundant and healed better than Baca. Four years later, in 3956, the star map was rediscovered by the wider world when some Colto divers stumbled upon it. After a secret and illegal Colto harvesting plant was placed on the seafloor near the Rockert Rift by the Republic and a few Selkath, the progenitor was furious by the invasion of her territory. Progenitor then let out a telepathic scream that caused the Fraxian sharks to swarm and drove Selkath into murderous frenzies. The combination eventually killed everyone working at the Republic Colto harvesting plant, and that's how Revan and his companions find the world in 3956 as they're searching for the fourth star map. By the time of Revan's arrival, the progenitor would be well over 30,000 years old. Not important, but it is neat. Canon alerts 31 and 32. Both Manon and the Selkath species have been canonized after first being introduced in 2003's Knights of the Old Republic. Manon itself has received a few scant mentions in reference books and on maps confirming it was still the home of the Selkath and still located in the same place in canon as it had been in Legends. The Selkath, however, have received a few more mentions and were even animated in their first appearance in the new canon, a season three episode of Clone Wars. Like their homeworld, the canon Selkath species is nearly identical to the one in Legends. The Selkath retain their amphibious nature and the same physical features that make them look like stingrays with arms and legs attached. The canon Selkath are still known as a peaceful people throughout the galaxy, though the Selkath who appear in the Clone Wars was a, was a bounty hunter working for Count Dooku. The Selkath in canon also seem to have retained their inability to breathe on land as adolescents due to a reference in Claudia Gray's Master and Apprentice. There, Obi-Wan Kenobi observes a Selkath youngling learning alongside a Mon Calamari youngling on a special aquatic level meant for, meant for training Jedi from amphibious species at the Jedi Temple on Coruscant. So there's just like a whole level there that's like an aquarium, but for like sentient species. So that's kind of cool. Um, this also means the species still has the capacity for force, force sensitivity, just as it did in Legends with Jedi Master Qual, who appeared in 3993 BBY as a member of the Dantooine Enclave Council, and also the Force-sensitive Selkath younglings that have been captured by the Sith on Manon. We don't have a lot of info about them besides this, but it's another example of something created for Knights of the Old Republic being adopted into the new canon. So there isn't a good way to imitate the sound of the native Selkath language, but we once saw it described as someone drinking a Slurpee and simultaneously talking with a retainer in. That's uh, quite evocative and a little wet, but Ian pretty much sums it up. So once Revan is past the cutscene and is done <laughs> talking to the Republic soldier, he can run over to East Central Auto City to find Hulas. Finally, after all this time and effort, we meet the legend that is Hulas. He's a Rodian who represents the Gino Haradan, a centuries-old secret society of assassins and bounty hunters who kill only evil people and won't accept a contract unless it matches their goals, which often align with the Republic, or so Hulas says. 
Now, if you know anything about the Gino Hardan quest, you're probably wondering how Good Boy Revan is going to accept the targets as each kill pushes him closer to the dark side. Which is a fine observation and one we really don't have a great answer for, except that some reference books note that Revan accepted all available bounties on dangerous criminals to summarily execute them extrajudicially. Again, this slight side run has a whole lot of killing in it, but we're not going to argue with nebulous throwaway lines in old Star Wars reference books. Also, we talk about it anyway because it's, this is a podcast and the Janelle Haradan quest is one of the more memorable ones from the game, probably because it's so tedious and takes so dang long to complete. Hulas gives Revan the task of killing Zulan on Dantooine or Lorgul there on Manan. We're obviously choosing Lorgul because we don't have to travel away from Manan to do it. Lorgul is a Rodian prisoner at the Republic base, and Revan is told to make it look like an accident. It is even easier since the Republic base is where we're going to kill a prisoner on the flimsy word of an obviously dishonest Jinnah you know, Haradan representative. Sadly, getting into the Republic base requires talking to Roland Wan at the Republic Embassy and agreeing to his mission for the Republic. Now, there's nothing inherently bad about Roland, and he's actually a decent dark side alignment farm due to a dialogue glitch. It's just that we wanted to do this one thing and get off Manon to finish the quest before returning back to Manon. Unfortunately, in order to murder a defenseless person in a cage, we have to get certified. The Republic has standards, damn it. You see, Roland needs Revan and his companions to infiltrate the Sith base across Manon and return a memory core that was retrieved from a captured submersible. In exchange, he'll give Revan and his pals info about the Manon star map and send them off to the Harakat Rift. Even a Revan who has already chosen to follow the Sith must agree to do this tedious bullshit, which is kind of funny. However, we will avoid the Harakat Rift for the time being to prove our worth to Holus. Revan and let's say HK-47 and Carthonasi run off to the Republic base and find Lorgal, a Rodian who claims to be the Great Liberator and poses a moral quandary to the gang. The captain of a Star Destroyer can kill millions if he labeled a war hero, but killing 100 people with a thermal detonator makes you a terrorist. We don't know the circumstances, and it doesn't really matter because this all ends with Lorgal reminding Revan that the Republic don't kill their prisoners before he's summarily executed by force choke, force kill, or use of the nearby terminal to overload the cage. Any which way you choose, Lorgal dies and we continue on this horrific cavalcade of murder and obvious moral contradictions, many of which were rightly pointed out by the imprisoned probable freedom fighter we just killed. But it's also a video game, and being a bad guy in a video game doesn't make you a bad guy in real life. Or a bad girl. Or a bad person. Upon returning to Hulas, he's delighted to hear we killed that guy, and also super impressed that Revan killed Kalo Nord for some reason, so he gives Revan the targets. One is a Gamorrean bounty hunter who resides on Tatooine named Voron Dasrod. One is a shapeshifter named Rulam Prolik, who is currently hiding out in Shadow, Shadowlands on Kashyyyk. And the last is a Selkath named Ithorak Gulder, who is right there on Manon. Revan can kill them in any order, which means that Ithorak is either the first or last of the targets he will attack. Since we've been on Manon long enough, let's head immediately back to Kashyyyk. After the Ivan Hawk lands, Revan is welcomed by newly liberated Wookiees before spamming Burst of Speed, because the reason you don't want to make two trips 
to Kasha because it just takes so long to get back to the Shadowlands because there's only one route and you have to take that basket cutscene again. It doesn't matter now because we're already making two trips and we finally got back to the Shadowlands with two random companions. Um, we'll take Zalbar and Jahani. Rulan Prolik resides near Jolie Bindo's old hut and thinks she's slick by taking the form of a Wookiee, but we already picked up the, that Wookiee's datapad on the trail and accuse Rulan, who turns into an image of Jolie Bindo and fights using a melee weapon. Once enough health has been drained, he pushes the group back and changes appearance again, this time growing into a Tarant attack. Also, he's suddenly immune to force powers after taking... And after taking more damage, he turns into an attack, which are the size of small dogs. It doesn't matter because Revan chases Rulan down and kills him. We don't know his species, if his powers are real or caused by technology, or really anything about him except that he was one of four Jinnahardan overseers, along with Lorne, Ithrak, and Hulas. Surprise, these aren't just random assassination targets. They're actually the other three Jinnahardan overseers, and Hulas is making a power play to control the group. Somehow, Hulas discovered the names of the other overseers, even though they are supposed to remain anonymous even from other overseers. Hulas intends to use Revan to eliminate the three other overseers to become the sole leader of the Jinnahardan, but his plan doesn't matter because we're going to take the whole organization down from the inside, including Hulas. After running back to the Ibon Hawk, the gang departs for Dantooine. See, we built this Jinnahardan side quest up with a programming note and We'll be done with it and back to the main quest by the end of the episode. Or we will be just as soon as Jolie Bindo is finished telling his story to... is telling his story. Revan made the mistake of asking Jolie about his past and now Revan's trapped hearing about the last ride of Endor Vex and Jolie Bindo. The Jedi believed Vex had a special destiny with Bindo explaining, quote, the force swirled around him like a hurricane. That's how great his destiny was, end quote. Sadly, the great destiny that aged Jedi masters fawned over went to Andor Vex's head, and he and he was becoming insufferable. Like so many other cautionary tales, Andor Vex's arrogance would be his undoing. Jolie almost abandoned him to his fate, but decided to stick it out a bit longer. On what turned out to be their final adventure together, the Jedi duo were captured by a particularly ruthless, ruthless group of brigands known as the Demian Raiders, who were led by a warlord named Krat. As Jolie explains to Revan, this was many years ago, so that's why he's never heard of the Demian system or any of the Raiders. Krat had the two Jedi brought before brought to him. Sorry. Krat had the two Jedi brought to the bridge of his flagship for questioning, but Andor Vex wasn't willing to play along. Even in chains, Vex was supremely confident in his destiny and began making demands. How dare you? Do you know who I am? I'm not answering questions. That sort of thing. Krat grew tired of Andor's endless bluster and crushed the Jedi's windpipe to shut him up. Then for good measure, Krat picked Vex, Krat picked Vex up by the throat and threw him down one of the ship's reactor shafts. As Andor was sucked down the shaft, Jolie could hear his friend's gurgling screams and the sound of his body bouncing around before it reached the reactor core, and that's when the ship's alarm started ringing. Turns out, when Andor Vex's mangled corpse fell into the reactor core, it initiated a chain of cascading failures across Krat's flagship. In the confusion, Jolie barely escaped with his life before the spaceship exploded, killing everyone on board, including Krat and most of the Demian Raider leaders. 
Julie explains that despite his hilariously gruesome and seemingly pointless death, Andor Vex did fulfill the destiny the Force laid out for him. The deaths of Krat and the subsequent demise of the Raiders broke their hold over the Demian system. The citizens of Demian were free from Krat's despotic rule, and the events sparked a sea change in the political structure of the entire sector for hundreds of years. If it hadn't been for Andor Vex mouthing off being thrown into a reactor shaft and triggering the core with his corpse, the people of Demian would still be subjugated under the vicious warlord Krat. Jolie concludes his never-ending story jokingly, quote, I'd call that quite the destiny, wouldn't you? End quote. Revan is flabbergasted by the ending of Jolie's transparent parable about pride coming before a great fall and responds accordingly, quote, I hate you, old man, end quote. And it's one of the best dialogue choices <laughs> of the game and really highlight the highlight of Jolie's loyalty quest because the trial of Sunri Anmanan is tedious at best. Bindu is a great character, and his backstory is truly heartbreaking, but the trial is just bad. We wanted to highlight this particular backstory because it's one of the funnier parts of the game, and downright delightful to watch Jolie fuck around with Revan. When Revan asked if the force swirled around him, Bindu said it was like a slight breeze, which is so condescending we can't help but respect it, even though because, even though we try our best. In the meantime, the Iban Hawk has docked at Dantooine, and I get to skip through the tall grass one last time before it's blown all to hell. On Dantooine, we have two objectives. The first is to catch up with old friends, mostly Master Disra Lerjada, who will tell Revan about the Great Hunt. The second is to kill the other Geno Harridan target, Zulon, who is actually a grand slaver, and we won't be having that on Dantooine. Besides, Malak will do it in the bombardment if we don't, and we might as well get a little XP while we're at it. Taking Zulon first, uh, he can be found near the Matal Estate on Dantooine, where we helped a couple of Starcross lovers live in harmony after ending a family feud between their fathers. Zulon is easily found and killed, leaving us more time to find out about the Great Hunt. Of course, if you listen to the show, you'll remember that we covered the Great Hunt in episode 12, where we discussed the KOTOR prequel comic, Shadows and Light. However, if you've forgotten, Master Disra Lerjada is happy to tell Revan the story of the Great Hunt to warn him against pride or something. We're going to include info from Shadow and Lights in the recap because it's never going to be more relevant than it is right here since the comic was released to fill in background info on the failure of the Three Knights. The Great Hunt began in 3995 BBY as a concerted effort by the Jedi Order to seek out and kill off all the Sith spawn unleashed by Exar Kun and his followers during the Great Sith War. The Hunt spanned two years with the Jedi successfully cleansing a number of worlds including Onderon, Yavin 4, Tython, Tatooine, and many others until the Jedi believed that only one Tech was left in the entire galaxy. In... 3993, the Enclave Council, in their first stupid decision that we're aware of as an official body, sent a team of three Jedi Knights to Korriban alone to find and destroy the last Tarent attack. This mission was undertaken covertly as the Order had publicly ended the Great Hunt days earlier and wanted it done discreetly. The Enclave Council sent their best trio of hunters. Humans Dron Keldroma and Shayla Nur and the Twi'lek Gun Han Suresh. Duran and Shayla were in love, but Gun Han viewed this as their falling to the dark side, despite the fact that he had sex with a Twilight 
Twi'lek Sith Acolyte on Corban to get info on the last Tarrant attack. Or maybe not the last, because there were rumors of a Tarrant attack on Kashyyyk, something that the Jedi Enclave on Dantooine wouldn't learn about until Revan talked to Des- Visra after killing the Tarrant attack on Kashyyyk some 37 years later. The old friends eventually fell to infighting when Gunhan confronted the couple about their love and Shayla called him the hypocrite. Juran used the Force to break his friends apart, told the Twi'lek that he and Shayla wouldn't break up, and wanted all of them to go after the Korban beast together, but Gunhan was having none of it. He told his friends of the rumors about Kashyyyk and left to find that beast, only to die horribly when his Force-imbued sword got stuck in the Tarentadex back, just as the Blade of Baca had. Revan was able to confirm Gunahan's death, but he won't learn about Duran and Chela's fates until visiting Korban, at which point the Enclave will be a pile of smoking rubble. But at least Revan is able to complete the Great Hunt for the Jedi Order 37 years after it officially ended. Hey, you know, forever worse. We will pick up this story outside the tomb of Naga Sadao on Korban. As the crew is bordering the Iban Hawk to leave, Jolie Bindo runs into an old friend named Davin Kor... Katras. The two catch up briefly, and then Davin mentions that Jolie Bindo's best friend, Sunri, has been arrested for murder on Manan and is imprisoned there. This forms the basis of Jolie's companion loyalty quest to be continued on Manan. The Ebon Hawk lifts off on a somber note because we're leaving the pristine rolling grasslands of Dantooine behind and won't return until 30, 3951 during the main quest of Knights of the Old Republic 2. Very soon, the Sith will rain turbolaser fire on Dantooine from orbit, destroying the Jedi Enclave before invading and brutally subjugating the people for a few years. It's even worse because this is the last we'll see of Masters Vandar Tokare, Dorak, and Tsar Leston, as they are all going to die horribly at Qatar in 3952. Unfortunately, Vruk Lamar will somehow still be hanging around on Dantooine even then. Now it's onto a world that hasn't had an orbital bombardment in like 23,000 years, Tatooine. Since we've arrived back on Tatooine, it's time to help Mission Veo learn a hard lesson about her brother as we complete her companion loyalty mission. You'll recall that we previously met Griff Veo, Mission's deadbeat brother, when we saved him from the clutches of the Sand People who had captured him because he worked with their sworn enemy, Zerka. In the process, Mission had learned that it was Griff who abandoned her on Terrace when she was only 12 years old, not his then-girlfriend, Lena. Since being abandoned, Mission had assumed that Lena was the reason because she didn't want a little kid hanging around, but that's, but that's not true. Lena paid for Griff to leave Terrace and offered to do the same for Mission, but Griff declined. As Lena correctly points out, Griff didn't even tell Mission where they were going, and if he had wanted his little sister to follow, he obviously would have told her, uh, you know, where they were going or when they would be back. Back in the Sand People Enclave, Griff confirmed all of Lena's story, saying that he did it to escape deaths and so his creditors wouldn't go after Mission. But even Mission doesn't believe it. In spite of it all... In spite of all that and the fact that he's a bastard, Mission still wants her brother released, which Revan arranges due to his good standing with the Sand People. After being freed, Griff went back to Anchorhead to resume his work with Zerka, with whom he's working on a top-secret recipe for reproducing Teresian ale via tat glands. Incidentally, uh, since we're back on Tatooine, we should note that we now have a somewhat definitive answer to the question of how many planets in the Star Wars universe end in the suffix 
uh, Uin, uh, O-O-I-N-E. We know that there are at least 12. Tatooine, Dantooine, Cladoine, Handoine, Deltoine, Vactoine, Cardoine, Kinoine, Mantoine, Reltoine, Ventoine, and Sestoine. There's also a world called Gracoine, which is spelled differently, ending in O-U-I-N-E instead of O-O-I-N-E, but it sounds similar, so maybe it's one of those American English to British English spellings with the random user added, but the pronunciation states, stays the same. It's probably not like that at all, but we digress. There are at least 12, maybe 13, and there's always the possibility that we miss some. If you find an ween that we missed, Email us and let us know. I'm all about finding as many weens as we can. We have to. We we have to know. This is this is a life's quest now. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, speaking of quests, Griff asks Revan to bring him some tack glands if he happens to find any during his adventuring. Despite their reservations about enabling Griff's get-rich-quick schemes, Revan and Mission return to Tatooine with the tack land because Griff also revealed there's. The real reason for working on this half-assed microbrewing scheme, he promised an exchange enforcer a sample of Teresian ale, now exceedingly rare in the wider galaxy after the destruction of Terrace. If Griff doesn't come through with a sample, the exchange is going to take his legs, and we're not even being hyperbolic. That's just what he says. Before agreeing to do this, Mission begged Griff to let this be the end of his scams before he got in too deep and ended up without his legs, or possibly worse. But Griff turns around and asks Revan for some seed money to get the Teresian ale business off the ground with his very next line of dialogue. This kid never learns. After the Ebon Hawk travels from Tatooine to Kashyyyk, Revan is, of course, able to find some tack lands because tack are native to Kashyyyk. While there, we didn't really mention that Revan got the tack lands from a box he found in a circuit camp in the Shadowlands that he jimmied open with a crowbar. Definitely wasn't from accidentally killing a few tack while trying to find Rule and Prolog after he turned into a, into a tack and ran off into a field. Not not that at all. When Revan talks to Mission after retrieving the glands, he can counsel her to help her brother or tell her to leave him to raw on Tatooine like he did to her on Terrace. Our Revan will tell Mission to try and reconcile both because it's the light side option, but also because it's a hard lesson Mission needs to learn and accept. Mission then resolves to return the tack line to Griff, but it is to no avail. By the time the Ebonhawk arrives back on Tatooine, Griff is long gone. The Erodian named Gurita Holda informs us that Griff fled the planet on the shuttle when the Teresian Ale scam fell apart. Wanting to keep his legs, Griff fled to parts unknown. The only message he left was to tell his sister goodbye and that he was sorry. Yet again, Mission Vow is abandoned by her family, but she seems to have come to terms with her brother and the life he leads. She's accepted that Griff makes his own mistakes, and nothing she does is going to change that. Mission is just happy that they tried to help Griff, even if it didn't make much of a difference. Uh, Mission discovered that some some lessons have to be learned the hard way, but now she's ready to move forward with her life and stop dwelling on, on her brother. Griff might learn his lesson after the exchange take his legs, but Mission's not holding her breath. In the end, Revan helped Griff as much as possible and helped the younger Vale learn a few life lessons along the way, ensuring Mission's full loyalty. After this mission, there's only one left to do on Tatooine, and that's dueling Gino Harad and Overseer Vorn Dasrod in the Dune Sea. 
Hulis has told Revan that Vorn is a torturous bounty hunter who always travels with an assault droid companion. While we don't know if he was really a torturer, Hulas certainly didn't lie about the assault droid, though neither are a match for Revan, Candor's Ordo, and HK-47. The companions gun the Gamorrean down easily and are back to the Ebon Hawk, headed for Manon in no time. Two overseers down, two to go. On Manon, we don't even worry about going to see Hulas first, because finding a Thorak Goldar isn't easy. Revan has to speak with a swoop racer named Vec at the Manon swoop track who can arrange a meeting between Revan and Thorak. Revan can either force persuade Vec that he's a wealthy buyer from Coruscant looking for a meeting, or he can just bribe Vec. Regardless, before we can meet Thorak, we have to gain access to the Manon Sith base via an encrypted pass card that uses a mini game to decrypt or by torturing a Sith prisoner for a passphrase. We're going to do the minigame because it's preferential to torture and begin to answer a series of math riddles that require Revan to find a pattern in the numbers presented. Revan does this either by doing math in his head or Googling the correct sequence. Either way, we got a pass card. Back in the docking bay, Revan and his companions, Jolie Bindo and Karthanasi, use the pass card to get into the Sith base and go directly to their dock to meet Itharak. It's lucky we got there so fast because the Sith change pass card encryption every couple of hours to prevent hacking. The meeting had to be arranged on the docking bay because that's the only place on Otto City without security cameras. The only thing Selkath love more than an overzealous security state is neutrality. We jump through all these hoops to get out here, and the fight is either 3 versus 3 or 3 versus 2, depending on how Revan handles Vec, who is in the employ of Itharak. Once again, Revan has the option to either force persuade Vec or bribe him to leave, and he chooses one because there's no reason for this nice Twi'lek to die defending his boss. The number of opponents doesn't really matter because Revan, Jolie, and Karth kill Itharak and his assault droid in short order, and adding Vec doesn't add much, too much to up the difficulty. With three quarters of the Jinohar then overseers now dead, it's time to return to Hulas and end this. Hulas rewards Revan for killing Zulon, Vorn, Itharak, and Rulin, and by now we've got almost the full set of Jinoharadan equipment. A helmet, a blaster, a melee weapon, a steel unit, and even something called power gloves, but we're missing that mesh armor to complete our collection. Initially, after giving Revan his final rewards for completing the side quest, Hulas tries to give him the slip. Hulas says Revan can't join the Jenaharadan and then tries to bolt after spilling the beans on his plan to become the sole overseer and use the Jenaharadan to his own ends. It can end like this with Revan and Hulas simply walking, but we're not going to let this fool get one over on us. We've already gone down this dark side rabbit hole and there's no turning back until this one side quest is done and Revan goes back to being a very good boy. When confronted by Revan, Hula sighs and agrees to a ritual duel in the Dune Sea on Tatooine. Hop in the Evan Hawk, and it's just a short short trip through hyperspace to go from Manon to Tatooine for a totally worthwhile reason. Killing a guy for double-crossing us, even though we saw it coming a mile away. Just outside the gates of Anchorhead, Revan finds Hulis surrounded by six thugs of all shapes and sizes. Revan came alone, as Hulis suggested, but it's not because Revan is some homespun rube. It's because seven guys are no match for two lightsabers and a guy spamming force lightning. Remember, friends, there is no alignment penalty for using dark side powers as a lightsider or vice versa. 
So spam lightning and force choke and force scream to your heart's content. By now, our Revan is dual wielding two custom built lightsabers at at least ours is because Jarkai, the Jedi fighting style taught to dual wielders is the best. Your Revan might sport a single lightsaber for the traditional look or perhaps a double bladed lightsaber. The color of crystal Revan uses doesn't affect alignment. So a light side Revan can use a red crystal simply because it looks cool. Interestingly, after having a rainbow of uh, after having a rainbow of choices for lightsaber color uh, was one of the few things Bioware had to fight with LucasArts about during the development of KOTOR. When the game when the game included colors in addition to the standard red, green, and blue blades, Lucasfilm rejected the idea as being too as being too many colors. Bioware stood their ground on this, however, and were able to keep some additional lightsaber color choices in the game by arguing that it was set 4,000 years before the films. Apparently, this was a very big deal. Uh, Lucasfilm relented, and the game shipped with five colors, purple, yellow, red, green, and blue. Thanks again to Alex, Alex Kane, the source of that excellent anecdote that we have time to discuss, because Hulas and his gang of thugs are easy to kill, even going solo. Hulas now lies dead, and the Juno Haradun. Hulas now, gosh, Hulas now lies dead, and the Juno Haradun will be in disarray. But at least Revan subverted their dubious aims and took out some bad guys along the way. Before leaving, Revan loots the corpse to find that Juno Haradun mesh armor, completing his Juno Haradun set. Now that our whirlwind adventure with the Dark Brotherhood Assassin's Guild of the Star Wars universe is over and we've docked on Manon, we can finally get back to the main quest and find the fourth star map, which we will do next episode because it's time to talk about something completely unrelated. We said we would get back to Manon and the main quest before the end of this episode. We never said anything about having time to start it. So, side quests. Was any content cut from Knights of the Old Republic? While many know that Knights of the Republic 2 had to cut hours of content due to release timelines, fewer are aware of the content Bioware cut from Knights of the Republic 2, a problem we hope to rectify. Why are we doing it now? Well, there's two reasons. First, there isn't that much cut content, so it won't take too long to cover. Second, and far more importantly, we came up with a better title for these segments, and that's exciting. Side quests. There's no narrative reason for it, but we have to talk about it sometimes, so here we are. The most well-known piece of cut content from Knights of the Old Republic is the world of Sleheron, which was a volcanic planet ruled by a hut gangster and home to a gladiatorial fighting ring that Revan could compete in. The world was cut to the development constraints, but it would have added a six-star map to the quest and would have also meant the game contained a world corresponding to each of the six life-giving and death-giving biomes listed in the Rakatan computer terminal on Dantooine. They were arboreal, grassland, and oceanic, and barren, desert, and volcanic, respectively. Speaking of desert worlds, a large amount of content was also cut from Tatooine. Originally, the star map was located in a Sarlacc pit, and Revan had to figure a way to find the map without being eaten by the Sarlacc like a common Boba Fett. There was also a sequence that involved Revan becoming a messiah to the Sand People and leading them in a revolt against Circa. Segways. They're great. 
Bioware also confirmed another quest was cut that occurred on Manon. If Revan fought and, fought and killed Bendak Starkiller in the dueling ring on Terrace, Revan would then encounter Deadeye Duncan, the worst duelist. You might remember Deadeye as the guy who lost a duel by dropping his blaster. On Manon, Duncan was to explain his amazing and improbable escape from Terrace before asking Revan if he could take the mysterious stranger nickname and persona that Revan used while dueling on Terrace. Instead, Deadeye Duncan just died horribly on Terrace during Darth Malak's orbital bombardment. While a few extra levels and quests were also cut from Terrace, the most interesting one was also reminiscent of a classic scene in A New Hope. It involved Revan and companions getting stuck in a trash compactor and having to solve a mini-game to escape. No word on if there was a Dianoga involved. In addition to the to Slaheron and the quest, Bastila Shen had at least three pieces of content cut from the final game. One occurred on Korriban, which involved Bastila stepping in and de-escalating de an argument between Revan and Lachelle. At this point, Bastila was allowed to accompany Revan on Korriban, though she obviously cannot in the final release of the game. Another cut sequence showed Bastila speaking with Nemo on Dantooine, uh, and with him asking her if she's gotten over her anger issues that she experienced as a youngling. Nemo is the dead Jedi Revan and Bastila found in the Star Map Temple on Dantooine. Finally, Bastila was involved in an alternate dark side ending for the game that was cut. The, on the ending only occurred if the player chose a female Revan who went to the dark side and romanced Carthonassi. At the end of the game, aboard the Starforge, the ascendant Darth Revan would have a chance to kill Bastila and then die with her lo lover Karth on the Starforge as it was destroyed by the Republic. Unlike Knights of the Old Republic 2, only a small bit of this content could be restored. PC players can download mods that restore the Dead Eye Duncan encounter, the alternate dark side ending, and Bastila's scene with Nemo. And with that, that concludes yeah. our episode for today. Just Thank you. Bouncing bouncing everywhere. Just everywhere. It was good. It was good. A good place to put all the all that side quest energy. Um, yeah, thank you mean, all. Yeah, you gotta have a <laughs> I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, it's fine. Big big side quest energy here on this game. Uh. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> hey, we get to do the reveal next time. I mean, like, what do you want? Come on now. No, it's good. It's good. We're building that tension. It's, it's good. So thank you all for listening to A People's History of the Old Republic. Next time, we're going to finish up our visit to Manan by getting involved in the world's Byzantine judicial system, facing Darth Bandin and locating the fourth star map. Then the companions are captured by Darth Malak and the Leviathan, which means it's time for the big reveal in the fall of Bastila Shan. Please rate, comment, and subscribe to FOTOR on iTunes, um, Apple, Google, anywhere you listen to podcasts. Thank you for the five-star ratings on iTunes. Ratings and comments help the show, and we really appreciate them. You can follow us on Twitter at PhotorPod or email us at PhotorPodcast at gmail.com. Send us questions and comments, and we will answer them on the show to the best of our ability. I'm AthertonKD on Twitter. And I'm Luke is Amazing on Twitter. Thank you again, and may the Force be with you. <laughs>